welcome to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, and today Amy's out, but I am here, so we are going to have a show. And uh, we're going to be talking today with uh, Jen Oxborough. She is the uh, executive director of the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, which, by the way, I raised money for my birthday last year for you. Well, thank you very and, much. And I, I, I was really grateful that we had our conversation, which made me want to do that. We are and so then, appreciative. And uh, her cohort, uh, Carrie Butler, who is the, uh, she is with, I'm going to do this right, uh... Policy Director for Action Utah? Yeah, that's right. I'm doing it right. You, okay. you nailed it. Great so job. you guys are working uh, at our state legislature. Currently, we are in the legis- legislative session, and our uh, it goes for the next, I don't know what, till uh, middle Until of March, March, right? March 12th, yeah. Okay. It sounds like and it's not that long, but it's long. It, it seems like <laughs> a long, especially when you guys are up there day after day after day. Yeah. But uh, one of the things you guys are obviously doing is working on domestic violence prevention as well as suicide prevention. So I was hoping... Uh, Carrie, can you tell me what what are you guys? Uh, what are some of the uh, legislation that you're actually working on? Right. Um, so we're working on a couple of uh, mental health bills that'll help uh, get people access to mental health, particularly in times of crisis. Uh, we're also working on an extreme risk protective order, which allows law enforcement to temporarily separate somebody from their firearm if they're in crisis. It's a civil proceeding, which allows us to get that person into mental health services and possibly prevent a tragedy. Um, Is these, these are people who have uh, exhibited some kinds of uh, distress or something behaviors, like that? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, we know that it's it's been a legislation that has gone through in 19 other states, and it's something that's been on the books in a couple of states for 20 years. Now, we uh, because it's been 20 years of data mm-hmm. collected, we can we can note from that that it's an effective way to prevent gun specific suicide. Um, in the states that have had it the longest, Connecticut and Indiana, we've seen anywhere from a reduction anywhere from seven to thirteen percent. Um, if if we look at Utah's suicide numbers and and suicide gun suicide specific mm-hmm. numbers, uh, we think that that's like a thirty thirty people we could thirty lives we could we potentially save. save every year. Mm-hmm. So is is am I right in in understanding that um, for suicide particularly? Uh, Guns are the number one choice for, at least for men, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And I don't know if it's the same for women. Is mm-hmm. is, is that true, uh, Jen? So women, um, especially in domestic violence situations, tend to have a higher degree of substance use disorder and tends to be alcohol or prescription drug-based. But um, firearms are so much more lethal, so much more dangerous, that when someone's attempting suicide with a firearm, um, you know, that, that nearly always plays out. In, in a fatality. Um, and the intersection here is that about 35% of Utah's domestic violence homicides are followed by a suicide. So we strongly support this because mm-hmm. if you prevent the suicides that Carrie's talking about and there's family violence risk, you're also potentially preventing these tragedies like we just saw in Grantsville, um, you know, and across our state. There's a huge rate of domestic violence homicide that also includes suicide, typically with a firearm. So when uh, when she mentioned uh, an incident that happened uh, recently here in Utah where a family was killed by uh, a teenage son right. who killed uh, his mother and two siblings? Uh, three. Three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his 
and shot his dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, his dad lived, and his brother, other older brother, was not at home. Right. Uh, it, it was a very difficult situation. So you're you're imagining that if there were some signs that yes. the legislation that's being proposed might be able to at least intervene in this circumstance. Right, and intervene in a civil way, not a criminal way. You know, it, it's difficult to. Um, I, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and mm-hmm. I see this all the time in my private practice where individuals are at risk, and we try to get them help, um, but our hospitals are at capacity. Um, it's very difficult to keep someone safe in a hospital setting and take away their right to be in the community. You know, often we're just interrupting that that risk for a minute, and then the risk can come back when they get back to life and those stressors are back in place. So we're really interested in a way to to help law enforcement and, and professionals and family members who see the risk factors do something before it turns into a criminal justice issue. You know, the ERPO process that Carrie's talking about would actually help people. ERPO. Um, extreme risk protective order. Okay process would help people to avoid uh, criminal charges. It would allow us to intervene medically and civilly earlier. And that would prevent people from having domestic violence charges that actually restrict them from gun ownership for a lifetime. So because I was going to ask you, you know, especially in our state where gun ownership is, you know, there's a lot of Second Amendment folks here. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and that's around the country, right? Oh, right. So, we, um, we, we, they're part of the fabric of so, uh, society here, which, which is why it's really important that we do this in such a na- tailored and narrow way. So we're not restricting people from access to things that they love, right? So that's what I want to ask you. So how do you, how do you mitigate that? Because you you know it's it's a, it's a right to own mm-hmm. a firearm and then Absolutely. if you if you're separating somebody from their rights, that's that's a pretty big deal. Right, it is a huge deal. Now, that's one of the things that we considered at Action Utah before we even took on a, a bill like this. We mm-hmm. only work on issues that a major that have a majority support in the state. Uh, 68% of Utahns support something like this. Most of those are Republicans and most of them are gun owners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we see this as a, a way to balance Second Amendment rights with uh, with protecting public safety, right? Because we're still allowing uh, for the ownership of a firearm. Now, if you need a little bit of help with the ownership of that firearm, th- this is a way that we can help, like uh, hold it mm-hmm. while 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 you're getting treatment or while you're uh, you know going through your crisis. Uh, how long is the period? Like, how do you determine how long my, uh, I don't know, cool down period might be? Right. So the cool down period, and we know this because of all of the amazing suicide prevention research that's been going on in our state. We mm-hmm. know that the the period of active suicidality is very, very brief, very, very brief. And I think maybe the same thing applies to domestic violence, Jen. I don't know. It's true. If we can intervene and get people some help and do some safety planning, um, the research that that we're using right now indicates that there's a 65% reduction in subsequent assault if we connect people with a trained victim advocate. Mm. So we're just looking for a chance to sit down and talk with people, do some crisis counseling and some safety planning. We don't ever force anyone to go into any level of care that they don't want to um, when they're engaging with our programs. Our programs are free and confidential. It's just helping to interrupt that risk. And, and that's the thing, too. So you, you mentioned um, that uh, it's interrupting the risk because there's like this period of time when, I mean, if we all get kind of overwrought and we, we're we not thinking as clearly as we might, mm-hmm. were we in a, a more relaxed and, and, and kind of uh, sustained a calm circumstance, mm-hmm. you you behave more normally, more uh, more thoughtfully, mm-hmm. and so this this is kind of what you're trying to mitigate. Yeah, that's exactly it. We want there's just a really brief period. Now we know that because this exists in in other states, and uh, and I'm a data nerd. We know that 
oftentimes she is. I know it's <laughs> it's it's embarrassing. It's fine. No, it's amazing. I think <laughs> you can hold so much information in your well, head. I'm, just, I'm gonna I forget. Know. She's a big I brain woman. There she is. I like that. Uh, oftentimes, that um, emergency order, the emergency order, is a long enough period of time for that cool down to happen, right? So that um, in some states, that the emergency order is the initial removal of the firearms before the person has uh, their hearing. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that's sufficient for that person to have sought treatment or got back on their medications or or even the black robe effect takes place, which is which is to say that just having somebody acknowledge hey, somebody else acknowledge in a position of authority. A you judge, might need a, judge a black robe in a black robe. That's why it's called that thing. Not you. Darth Vader. Not Darth Vader. Although that would be kind of cool. Right. If Darth Vader mm-hmm. told you to uh, like give up my firearms, I'd probably not. Yeah. I probably wouldn't. No, you might think about it though. Yeah, I'd consider it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but what they're doing, like what that is, is is enough of a shakedown or a wake up mm-hmm. call for the person who's in crisis. And I think it's important to note too that there are other. This is a last case scenario or a last right. resort scenario, scenario, right? This is yeah. this is only applies to a very narrow group of of people who um, have already been who who we've already tried to help in other ways, like. Gold standard in in a situation like this is a family member can intervene and get the person the help that they need. Right? Um, we have we have a safe harbor law that allows a family member to take a firearm to law enforcement. We have uh, we have a pink a pink sheet process that allows us to put somebody into uh, mental health services if if they rise to the level of adjudicated mental illness. And this is kind of the extension of that, right? A little bit, yeah. So I want to... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. We'll come back. We'll continue our discussion on domestic violence prevention and suicide prevention. You're listening to Voices of Reason. We are back with Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, and uh, Amy's out this week. And today I'm speaking with Jen Oxborough. She's executive director of the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. And Carrie Butler, she is a policy director for with uh, Action Utah. They are working at our state legislature trying to help prevent suicide and domestic violence. And, uh, Carrie, you were kind of explaining how the, the proposals that you have running uh, in this current uh, legislative session are kind of complements to existing uh, laws that are already on the books to help, uh, you know, I don't know, kind of ease situations that otherwise would be pretty tense and potentially kind of dangerous and uh, life-threatening. Right, yeah. Um, we see we see this as kind of a tool in the toolbox for family members or for law enforcement who have kind of reached the end of their rope, right? There's nothing else that they can do. They've tried to remove the firearm um, from somebody who's making threats with the firearm or, or somebody who's exhibiting dangerous behaviors with that um, in, in other ways. And we have other mechanisms for that. Uh, we have licensed clinical social workers, for example, who can intervene. Um, but oftentimes these are the, these uh, are necessary in a few cases where the people are um, in such elevated crisis that they can't recognize that they themselves are in the crisis and the family member doesn't really have any other tools mm-hmm. to utilize. This is a last resort. What are the uh, criticisms you guys are receiving in terms of, I mean, obviously you have 
a majority of support, but there got to be some mm-hmm. folks who are kind of worried this might be, I always feel like they use a slippery slope argument, uh, because uh-huh. it's, is that something you've uh, had to uh, go up against? Sure. You know, um, we looked at Department of Health data, and um, I was surprised at this number, and I think a lot of the critics were are surprised when we share this information, that less than 2% of domestic violence homicide victims in Utah have an order of protection at the time of their murder. Um, most people Less than 2%. Less than 2%. So I think people... People think that it's really easy to get a protective order, um, like an extreme risk protective mm-hmm. order. Would There would be thousands of them if we had this law. Not true. I think when I look at the data, there are probably like 20 to 40 cases per year that would qualify for this. I, I don't think that it would be thousands and thousands. Mm-hmm. I think if we write the law carefully... Um, and we're really aiming it at those very high-risk situations, it would be a law that would help us to intervene in the most critical cases. Um, So most people think that it's really, really easy to walk in and get a protective order. Some people call it a restraining order, that you can make false accusations if you're angry at someone. It's just not true. When we look at those cases and we see that that less than 2% of the most at-risk people are actually intervening with protective orders, we know that that's simply not the case. So I think there's just misinformation out there, a lot of fear that we're going to um, overstep and uh, go too far with this. And that's not our aim at all. So how do you uh, how do you calm those fears or lay those fears? Because, you know, again, we, we talk about how important this is, uh, you know, sustaining this right uh, to have your firearms. And particularly if, if you go to... Uh, Ask somebody to do something uh, so, uh, I guess, it's part of the fabric of the, of the country, let alone mm-hmm. our state. You, you have to have a lot of reason and, and um, evidence to, uh, you right. know, to, to get this to happen, correct? Right. That's absolutely right. And I think that was really important to uh, Representative Handy when he was creating the legislation. Um, so the, the bill that he – it's HB 229 um, that he's running. This will be the third year that he's running it. It includes language to um, – to kind of allay that fear. That's the number one that's the number one concern we always hear when we talk about this is what if my neighbor gets real mad at me mm-hmm. and and chooses to retaliate by taking my guns away. Um so number one it's a very narrow group of people who can actually file or petition for this. It's uh, uh family members who live with the person or have lived with the person or resided with the person for 6 months. Um those are the people who are most likely to be able to observe s- signs and uh behaviors. Uh, it also includes a third-degree felony charge uh, for false reporting. And the evidentiary yeah. standard, Jason, is actually quite high. It's a preponderance of evidence. Some people have um, urged the legislator to push it up to clear and convincing evidence, but they have to present present some pretty compelling evidence before a judge is going to step mm-hmm. in and, and grant one of these. It's not going to be, um, you know, my neighbor cut me off and I feel like he was really mad at me and I'm afraid he's going to uses firearm to shoot me now that's 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 the fear that exists about these flag uh red flag laws but that's not uh number one we haven't ever ever seen that across the country in Mm -hmm. places that have that number two we've tried to make sure that we mitigated that with the language inside the bill to make sure that that is uh as uh rare as possible so it doesn't become kind of a a revenge situation it's not a revenge situation and and it is accompanied by a third degree felony which is the highest penalty in the in the country right now in one of these types of laws right so if somebody does that then they literally they would lose their firearms right and and jen when jen was talking about the protective order process and and the reason we made it a third degree felony is because it matches a protective order Mm -hmm. process Mm -hmm. if you falsely 
If you falsely if you bring accuse false, someone. Yeah, if you bring false, false evidence in mm-hmm. the pursuit of a, an order of protection, it's a third-degree felony. It says that right on the form. The courts advise you of that. And so, um, and that's always been the case. That's not new. That's in place right now. Okay. You know, you're talking about the things that are the fabric of Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved here almost 17 years ago because we're such a family-oriented state, and we had two small children, and we wanted a place that was wholesome and safe and beautiful outdoors and a healthy place to raise our kids. And that those are things that are all part of the fabric of Utah, too. So I think we are a state that's really, really committed to safety and family values and um that's just as much a part of our fabric as guns, right? Mm-hmm. So so being safe, feeling safe in our homes, especially um, with our families, with our children, feeling safe in our classrooms, feeling safe when we're, you know, at movie theaters or concerts or in, in shopping malls, um, that that's part of our fabric of, of our communities in Utah, too. And um, there are certain cases where a firearm simply does not make it more safe. If somebody's in crisis, we need to be able to recognize that um, and help to prevent the risk. That's that's really just as simply said. Uh, that that's our interest in this is just improving safety. When we come back, I want to uh, ask you a, a bit of, more about efforts to prevent domestic violence and suicide, particularly. Uh, we see so many young people today uh, taking their own lives mm-hmm. in, in, in ways uh, that just it, it's just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And I know you guys uh, have spent a lot of your time trying to understand that. And maybe there's some way you can kind of explain to our audience uh, what can be done to kind of mitigate that as well. You're listening to Voices of Reason. We are back with Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee. Amy Donaldson's out this week. I am speaking with Jen Oxborough. She is Executive Director of the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition and Carrie Butler, Policy Director for Action Utah. And they have been working to prevent domestic violence and suicide. And they're also working uh, at the state legislature to uh, forward legislation that would help create uh, safer environments for people, particularly those involved in uh, domestic violence and uh, you know, potentially could uh, do themselves harm. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I feel like we've seen so many stories over the past year or two, particularly, that so many people, particularly young people, are taking their own lives. Mm -hmm. And I I wanted to ask you, I mean, and and domestic violence obviously has been, it's it's an ongoing issue, so I'm not trying to make one worse than the other, but I just feel like this this, uh, suicide thing is just really kind of uh, of captured my uh, imagination to some degree. What, What... do we have any reasons as to why so many young people have uh, found themselves in such a hopeless cir- circumstance that they, uh, they, they choose this route? You know, that's a really good question, Jason. I appreciate it. But I also need to be upfront that I'm not an expert in suicide prevention in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just the, you know, policy part. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we are still looking at that. Um, recently, our legislature funded a study that was done by the um, Harvard Public Health School. Mm-hmm. And we're fortunate enough to have uh, one of the lead uh, investigators on that study, Marissa Sobelson-Hen, here at um, Intermountain working on this issue, um, as well as a, a bunch of really talented, really qualified people who are very, very concerned about what you just mentioned, our rising uh, suicide rates, especially among our young people. Now, the The study was really interesting as it showed that we don't necessarily have a significantly higher attempt rate here in the state relative to our 
state peers, mm-hmm. so to speak. But we do have a higher completion rate. And the reason uh, they think that we have a higher completion rate is because of the method. Now, um, firearms are very accessible here in the state, which we've we've talked mm-hmm. about a little bit. Um, and we, we are working towards but are not quite yet at a place where um, – there, we're securing them properly, especially in our in our homes where we have teens. Um, that's something new that we're that we're working on. And I have to give a shout out to um, Clark Apotion uh, with the Utah Sport Shooting Council, who works really closely with some of these suicide prevention groups to help educate the firearm community, the gun owning community, on how crucial it is and how important it is to secure those firearms, particularly when. Um, particularly when you have a young person in the home who is experiencing um, suicidality or um, some kind of stressor, yeah. um, You know, yeah, stressors. I think a lot of times family members um, don't necessarily recognize the warning signs either um, or or haven't um, had a conversation with their kids about this. Like guns are a normal part of, uh, of our family, you know, life. A lot of young people grow up around them and are pretty comfortable with them here. And, um, and that's fine, but it, it can be difficult to start a conversation with your children about, um, you know, having thoughts of wanting to die or making a plan to die or, um, what they're seeing in their peers. And I see that often as a therapist and as a professional advocate, we just don't know how to start the conversation and we're not sure how to hold that space. So to Carrie's point, um, it is essential that we are safely storing firearms when they're in our home. Um, and if there are risks present and we don't know how to start that conversation that we're reaching out for help. So um, we have professional advocates that are available 24-7, totally for free, totally confidentially. You don't even have to tell us your name. Um, you can call 1-800-897-LINK, L-I-N-K, if you have a, a family abuse or violence situation. If you're worried about how to start a conversation with someone who may be at risk, you can call us for free confidentially and uh, our advocates can help help you understand how to take those next steps to to be safe and find resources in your community. And in Utah, you can dial 211 right. and explain that you need help and they will offer uh, yep. resources available to you uh, many times f- for little or no cost. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so you're, the, the state does offer a lot of opportunity for people to help themselves if they right. just know where to look. Right. I think right. it's probably important that we mention SafeUT, the SafeUT app as well, which is a, an app that I advocate that my teens have on their phone and that mm-hmm. all of their friends have on their phone. Um, it, it gives them an opportunity to reach out if they're in crisis or if they recognize that one of their friends is in crisis. Um, I think that our state has done a really interesting and phenomenal job rallying troops and getting getting people uh aware of the situation. So um, I'm, I'm pretty proud of no, you know, the look, work that we're doing. i got to be honest with you. When, if you think about the fact that people, we, we, we uh, I don't know, we, we, we give um, lawmakers and politicians a lot of crap uh, very often. <laughs> and I, I, on this show, I do the same thing. But I'll tell you, I, when they do something positive like that, mm-hmm. create, an op- uh, create avenues for people to be able to help themselves right and and then those of us who want to you know be able to help uh then we should uh certainly give them kudos for uh being you know doing what we would want them to do to help our communities uh you know this is has this been a growing problem i don't i don't this is one of the things i'm i'm never sure of i always feel like as the media we always make it seem like it's you know the, the 
not the world's coming to an end, but it, it is happening so frequently. So is it feels like it is it's domestic like, violence and suicide. Is it is it any different than it has been over the years, uh, Jen? So in 2015, with the help of the Department of Health, we recognized that our domestic violence homicide cases were um, a significant portion of our homicide cases overall in Utah. So nationally, about 30 percent of homicides are perpetrated by a cohabitant, a current or former intimate partner, um, a family member. Mm -hmm. In Utah, looking at a 20 year trend, we were 42 percent of our homicides. In some years, we were as high as 55, 60 percent of our homicides. And that was with a very narrow definition. When you start to look at all of the suicides that are involved in those that aren't counted in those numbers, all of the officer involved shootings, the cost to the community, I mean, the cost of a tragedy um, of family violence can can be exponential. You know, we have several officers that are involved and some have to come offline. We have a lot of medical resources and the impact on the community can be really devastating too. So, um, so the legislature invested in a lethality assessment protocol. And finally, for the first time um, last year, and again this year, we saw the DV fatality rate start to come down. So that's very promising to us. I don't know if it's a trend yet, but we sure hope it is. And we're gonna, we're going to keep working together as a team to make sure that continues. That sounds great. I'm I, so I, proud I, of you. I, right. I, I always yeah. love it when I when you there's hope. In hearing numbers like that, right? There is. Well, and it's why we adopted this protocol in particular. It's from Maryland. It's been adopted since 2005 in over 30 jurisdictions across the country. The reason that our legislature invested in this and partnered with us with 70 different law enforcement agencies across the state was because it's evidence to drop the DV fatality rate, including suicide um, and officer-involved shootings, by as much as 30% in three to five years of implementing to fidelity. And that's what's happening here in Utah. We're seeing those numbers come down with great teamwork. Excellent. Ooh, I excellent. love that data. It makes mm-hmm. me so happy. It does. I'm yeah. with you on that one. Even Let's... just hearing you say numbers is making me all cheered <laughs> up. <laughs> we'll come back and continue our discussion on prevention of suicide and domestic violence. You're listening to Voices of Reason. We're back with Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee. And uh, today we're speaking with uh, Jen Oxborough. She is the executive director of the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition and Carrie Butler, policy director with Action Utah. And Jen, you mentioned that um, you, you had some uh, information with regard to how uh, this, some of the rates are going down in some ways, but uh, in, in terms of domestic violence, but there's still some issues to be addressed. Absolutely. So we're really excited about those numbers coming down, and we want to see the numbers come down even more. And I believe they can if we can intervene in about 15 to 20 cases per year of the most high-risk family violence situations where there's a firearm. So we've seen the numbers come down where strangulation is the method. We passed a really strong strangulation bill a couple of years ago. We were one of the last six states in the country to make strangulation a felony. Um, And when we passed that bill... It wasn't a felony? It was not a felony. Oh, my gosh. I know. It took us nine years... I don't even believe you're saying that. Nine years of policy work to make strangulation a felony in Utah. It took nine years to convince lawmakers that we should make strangulation... 
OK, all that so stuff I said earlier, I've just gone away. Our prosecution, <laughs> our prosecution rates are, well, are nice. And why that matters is our prosecution rates um, have have gone up with felony strangulation. And that allows us to intervene with a criminal justice approach to help people be safer sooner. Right. Um, strangulation is one of the most deadly risk factors in intimate partner homicide, of course. Right. Um so anyway, we're seeing our strangulation deaths come down. We're seeing blunt force trauma deaths come down. What we're not seeing reduce is domestic violence homicide perpetrated with a firearm. And those DV cases that end in death, that end in suicide with the perpetrator of violence, those are not coming down either. So if we want to continue to do more to reduce these tragedies in our communities, we have to have a mechanism. We have to have a tool, a a tool that doesn't go too far, but a tool that allows law enforcement and professionals and people who see the risk factors intervene sooner. That's what's going to make a difference in driving down that rate of DV homicide even more. Domestic violence is one of those things that, you know, people don't talk about nearly as much because, right. uh, I mean, there's a shame involved in it. Yep. There's also a personal, um, uh, you know, you, you, you don't feel like you want to be intervening in somebody's life or, or being too intrusive. But the truth right. is, if we if we don't look out for each other, those are the kinds of things that are insidious. And then when something truly terrible happens, yeah. we're saying to ourselves, what could, we, what could we have done or could I have done more? And the truth mm-hmm. is you can. You just have to see that opportunity and, and, and understand how you can uh, you know, put yourself in a situation to help. We can't fix these things if we can't talk about it, right? So if we can't talk about suicide risk, if we can't talk about safely storing guns, if we can't talk about getting mental health care to people who need it sooner, um, if we can't talk about domestic violence or family violence or abuse, sexual assault, Utah's a really safe place overall, except for certain types of crime. Domestic violence is very high. The prevalence of domestic violence in Utah is higher than other places that I've lived, like Detroit and Pittsburgh, Boston, rural Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's higher here. Child maltreatment. I, I have a background working for DCFS. Um, child maltreatment treatment rates in Utah are high. Sexual assault rates are high in Utah. We could fix these things if we have a conversation about it. And that's that's been proven with domestic violence homicide. Once we started talking about it in 2015, once we put some resources there and we teamed up, we're starting to see improvements. So we can. When it comes to suicide, we're definitely starting to see some momentum in the right direction there, too. Carrie, what would you like to... Uh, are, are there any things that you'd like to see maybe uh, in, in the years coming ahead uh, to continue to uh, mitigate this issue and hopefully, you know, as she said, kind of keep the uh, momentum and the trend of uh, maybe seeing fewer people uh, take their own lives? Yeah, no, um, I'm a public health nerd first and foremost. So I think that it's really we're what we're talking about now is like a tertiary intervention when a person is already entering crisis, right? What I would love to see um, is uh, stemming the flow of people coming into crisis, like intervening far sooner like Jen was talking about intervening um, in spaces where they're not in crisis where they're not uh, where where they can be reached through mental health services um, that's what I would like to see us putting our resources towards um, in the future and what I think we're working towards as a state as well is putting resources towards the actual root causes of these mm-hmm. um, what do we call them nationally? These uh, deaths of despair, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and I think and I think that has a lot to do with other social policies that we probably don't have time to go into. So, do we consider this? Is this a social issue or is it a public health issue? 
I think it's a preventable public health issue. I agree. Um, and I think it, it is a private family matter to people in a lot of ways. It's what you said. There's so much shame and embarrassment. I hear that all the time as a therapist. And, and I try to explain to people, you know, domestic violence in Utah is happening to one in three women in their adult lifetime. So it's happening all around us. Um, again, if we talk about it, we have a chance to intervene and prevent some of the worst outcomes. I, I hate to think that one out of three, that's... Yeah. That's... Depressing. It is. It's, oh God, I didn't hang out with Jen for a month when I met her because of her job. I was like, this is a bummer. It's also fixable. <laughs> there are things that we can do. We're never going to eliminate all of this. But, you know, we're seeing that when we put our heads together, when we put resources behind this, and when we draw from research, we see improvements and our communities and families get safer. So when you say draw from research, use that evidence to understand how you can potentially, uh, you know, do some, uh, create some uh, solutions? Yeah, absolutely. I think when people are um, firing back at us about these different bills and ideas, and um, they just don't understand the research behind it. Mm -hmm. And so I think as policy experts and people who are passionate about these issues, it's our responsibility to help people understand this isn't my idea, right? I'm not not (laughs) a gun hater. My sister is a police officer. My dad is a registered gun dealer. I come from cattle ranchers and military people. Like, I'm, I'm not about taking guns or constitutional rights away. I'm about improving safety based on research. So I, I think that's what we need to be doing as policy experts is helping people understand the facts, not opinion, but the facts. And, and that's where we are finding better partnership. Can you mention one more time where people can go for resources and, and potential help if they need uh assistance with uh, domestic violence or with suicide prevention? So in Utah, you can reach out to us for free, confidentially. In over 100 languages, we have advocates available 24-7 at 1-800-897-LINK. You can also reach us at UDVC, Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, dot org. Um, and, and there are a number of other resources for suicide prevention, too. Um, we just hope people will make that call. And also 211 if you're in Utah, because, that, again, that's where you can start, and right. uh, that'll get you where you're going. Yeah. Uh, Jen Carey, thank you very much. Uh, this is a great conversation, and I'm hoping that uh, you are successful in your efforts on Capitol Hill. Thank, thank you, Jason. You. All right. Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. And if you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail. You can also find me find us on Twitter at Adion Sports and at Jason Lee One. Our show's Twitter handle is at VOR Podcast. You can check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to uh, free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.